This is the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast, where we explore how to live a lifestyle of discipleship to help you grow in the everyday moments of life. I'm Chris Lamberth. And I'm Josh Havens. If you're listening to this podcast, it's probably because you have a deep desire to grow daily in your walk with Christ. And even though we have that desire to grow in our relationship, it doesn't mean it comes naturally. There are many pitfalls and struggles along the way. And that's why it's so important to talk about motivation. How do you develop the motivation to stick with daily growth discipleship? And this week, we're talking with Dr. David Trementosi. And if there's one thing that you take away from his story, I think it's going to be how he learned to be motivated and desperate for God. Desperate for God is his blogging platform, and it was birthed from a period of his life where he was trying to get a PhD, his wife was going through several miscarriages, and his life was in chaos, turned upside down. And despite knowing that he was called of God to do the things that he was doing, despite the fact that he knew he was called into the ministry, it was a very difficult trying time in his life. And the one thing that got him through that was knowing that he was called and developing a deep desperation for God. And so now if you would ask David, how do you stay consistent with your walk with God? How, how do you find time with it? I think he would answer by learning to be desperate for him because he had to walk through a time when he wasn't sure God was always there. And he had to do a lot of deep soul-searching and study to learn what it meant to walk in faith with God. If you check out David's writing on his website, Desperate for God, you'll notice that it doesn't sound very academic. So you might be surprised to learn that David is a professor of theology, as well as the vice president of education and the academic dean of the master's program at Continental Theological Seminary in Belgium. He's also served in ministry for over 10 years in both pastoral, youth ministry, college ministry, career areas. He's got a Bachelor of Arts from Messiah College, a Master's of Divinity, and a PhD in Theology from Regent University. He's written multiple books, and he's written multiple devotional books and theological books as well. He and his wife Emily live in Brussels with their three children, Judah, Caleb, and Hallie, where they serve as missionaries with the Assemblies of God. So David's got quite the academic portfolio, and yet, on Desperate for God, he's writing from a very emotional place where you can tell that he's processing very raw feelings and how we approach God with those feelings. And so this is just a really great conversation where we see academics informing our emotions and our emotions informing our academic studies and Honestly, I think that's really where God wants us to kind of be, where we use our rational faculties and then our emotional faculties, and we couple them together in a place where we can holistically approach what it means to be a human being. So I wanted to start this conversation off by asking David, how did the process of getting a PhD, a very academic degree, affect his spiritual life? How did the process of getting a doctorate and going through the process of higher education in, in particular change you? In other words, like how did it help you grow in your relationship with God? The Lord made it very clear to me, and he told me, he said, I want you to um, go back to school. And at the time, I had my Master's of Divinity already, and he said, I want you to get a degree in theology. And I knew that Regent was offering a degree. It was called a PhD in Renewal Studies, which was really a, it's a degree in theology, but it was an emphasis on pneumatology at every level. So we studied church history, systematic theology, but on top of that, we also added the dimension, what is the role of the spirit in this regard, in Christology, in pneumatology, in soteriology, in uh, philosophy of religion, um, in church history, uh, not only what did Martin Luther teach and do, but what did his what were his views on the spirit and Calvin and you know Eastern Christianity, the early medieval you know Christianity, and so all of that. I knew that the school region had launched it and had only been out for a couple years, and so by the time we had left the ministry, it had had lasted long enough that I knew that it was going to be a legitimate program, and so the Lord said, "I want you to go back to that." 
to Regent and get that degree because I'm calling you into the Pentecostal movement so that you can help provide some theological grounding where it's most needed. And so for me, I assumed that I would be going and teaching at an AG Pentecostal school to help train up, you know, future leaders in our movement. And, um, but as it turned out, the Lord was just shutting doors everywhere. Um, I mean, for um, practically five years, uh, well, about four years, I just, I was looking, I found opportunities, but nothing was opening. And finally, the Lord opened up um, this opportunity here at CTS, which actually came about when I was at Global and our president, Dr. Joseph Dimitrov, came and spoke at a Global um, uh, chapel service. And um, I was able to meet with him afterwards for just 15 minutes, shared my heart with him. We were contemplating uh, getting into missions and I just shared my heart and then it was just an instant connection. He said, David, he said, if you decide to go with missions, he says, we would love to have you come. And I shared with him my vision, my calling. And he says, we need people like you. And if you come, you can pretty much tell us whatever you want to do. Those are all areas that we need. (laughs) And so it was an open door invitation. And so, of course, it took a good two, two and a half years to itinerate and raise our budget. But the Lord has now brought me to a place here where I am doing exactly what the Lord initially called me to before I even started my PhD program, the very call that brought me into my PhD program. And so now we're being asked to go to some of these extension sites, whether it's in Italy or in France, and actually launch a program in Pentecostal studies. Interestingly, we're being accredited in the Belgian um, higher education system and they will not accredit us as a standard evangelical school because they said, we have those already. We will only accredit you if you can show us something that we don't have already. And so we said, well, we're a Pentecostal school and our focus is on Pentecostal theology. And they said, okay, we will only accredit you if your program is a program in Pentecostal studies. And so now we don't just get to do it because that's our school mission, but we are legally bound by the accreditation, a secular accreditation agency to provide a program and curriculum that trains up students in Pentecostal theology. And so it's just absolutely amazing the opportunities that the Lord has opened up not only for the school, but really for me, it's been very affirming because, uh, you know, the, the, the whole pursuit of, uh, you know, the PhD was a long drawn out process. And so, um, so that's a little bit about, you know, what I'm doing here, how I got here, my vision for what, you know, I see the Lord has brought me here to do. And now in my position of leadership, um, I see that CTS can literally become a hub to help train up leaders all across continental Europe as we have right now five or six different countries asking us to partner with them uh, with their national movements um, at, with an educational presence. And so, so for me, I find that just incredibly exciting. And so... Um, so that's, that's what we're looking at doing. And so I'm very excited about that. There's a lot of, like I said, the opportunities are, are really exciting, but they're also very daunting. Um, but God is, God is opening up doors. He's bringing faculty to us. Um, and I would say that, you know, our, my pursuit to be where I am today it's all been by God's grace, but it has been a massive journey. It has been a very long, uh, drawn-out process. It has been a 27 years for me of training and preparing myself um, ever since I first uh, graduated with my bachelor's degree. Um, and so by the time... I began my PhD and the Lord had already made a very clear 
sense in my heart that, that he was calling me to do this theological training in the Pentecostal world. Um, that's what kept me in the program because it was very, very grueling. I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good student, but I'm not a brilliant student. I, I, my thing is I'm, I work hard and I persevere. And that's been kind of a trait that God has blessed me with, particularly athletics with soccer growing up and running and, eventually I get it done. And for me with my PhD, it certainly wasn't um, because I was smart or anything. It was because I stuck with it. And and I say that because um, after our, my, my first phase was the, the coursework phase. That was three years. And by God's grace, I, I stuck with it, stayed with the, the pace and completed it in three years and then completed and passed my oral and written exams. And then that led us into the dissertation phase. And um, and at that point, my wife had previously, we had been praying, and she asked if, uh, she she said, we I want to have more children. We already had our two boys. And so we agreed to wait until after that, that phase of the coursework. And so um, as I was putting together my thesis proposal, we, we had gotten pregnant. And um, we went through a season of three years of just intense heartbreak. We uh, had gotten pregnant and uh, had got, we had really prayed for a girl. We had two boys and Emily has a very close relationship with her mother and had just always, you know, prayed that she would have that relationship with a daughter someday. And so the Lord blessed us and we got pregnant with, um, with a baby girl. And, uh, and, you know, we made it through the first trimester, the time everybody's most concerned about. And um, we had made into the sonograms and uh, we found out it was a baby girl and we were so excited. And they said, you know, all everything, all the vital signs were fine. And um, so we, we went, went um, all the way up to 21 weeks and... Um, and we went in for just a routine sonogram and discovered that there was no heartbeat. And so um, it was an absolute shock. And uh, it was too far along um, for them to, they had to deliver Emily in the hospital. So she had to go uh, be induced to have labor pains. She had to go through everything every other woman would have to go through. And uh, even having nurses come by that didn't read the papers and asked if she was excited for her her baby. And we'd have to explain what was happening, that the baby that coming was coming out would not even be alive. And so we had to go through all of that. We delivered in the hospital and held our baby girl, Isabella. And, uh, and there was no reason for her death. They said medically there was nothing happened and a very rare, <clears throat> a very rare medical condition. They discovered it was called stenosis of the umbilical cord and her umbilical cord had basically shriveled up. They don't know why, but it shriveled up and, and it's, you know, right just week, week or so before and she starved to death. They said, don't worry. This is something that we only know of one or two cases ever that it's happened to the same couple more than once. They said, you have no reason to worry about getting pregnant again. But we were grieving very deeply. It was, it was very difficult. We had a funeral. We have a plot in Kentucky. We buried her. And um, so we prayed and, and the Lord, we, we got pregnant again. And um, this time we had a baby boy. Joseph, and we went through the same process, and uh, this process again led us to 19 weeks to another sonogram to be told the same exact news that there was no heartbeat. And so, yet again, we had to go into the hospital, and again, Emily had to be induced and had to deliver, and. Uh, and when they did the examination, they discovered that it was the same condition, stenosis of the umbilical cord. And here I am writing, trying to put together a dissertation on the topic of faith. 
And I'm struggling with, in a major way, with the issue of theodicy, which, uh, which is the which is a, a area of study that has to do with if God is ultimately good, and sovereign, all powerful, then why do bad things happen? You know, that's the question of theodicy, and you know we had no answers. And I'm in a program of high academic level, and I had nothing to say. You know, all we could do was cry and wonder what was going on. And so all of this was going on in the midst of my PhD, trying to write a dissertation and in uh, dealing with a grieving wife, myself grieving and uh, and people having good intentions, but not knowing what to say. And then you find yourself isolated because people don't want to say the wrong thing. So they don't say anything. And, you know, even in a loving church, we found ourselves very isolated. You know, just a few family members were able to identify with us. And uh, so we had about a three year journey in the midst of this this season of school that we walked through this. And uh, and so in the midst of that, I was having to travel from Kentucky to Virginia Beach, which was a 12 hour drive for weeks, sometimes over a month, uh, leaving Emily at home with the with my two boys during this season. So it was a brutal, brutal time. And it was a time where the Lord really stretched us as we wrestled with our calling. And um, finally, I was able to complete the PhD by God's grace. And all of this issue of struggle, of suffering, of theodicy, of question, um, even though my dissertation, which necessarily has to be academic, it is thoroughly informed by this context of suffering and loss and trying to find hope when uh, you struggle with the reality of God's presence. And, you know, by God's grace, we were able to make it through. And we were able to because we had a loving context. We had family that loved us, a Christian family. And um, Emily and I fortunately had many years of ministry behind us. We fortunately were raised in families that were healthy. And we were able to just dig in deep and discover God's faithfulness, even in a time that made no sense. Um we were able to come to the point of saying, Lord, we know you are faithful. We can't deny when we look back all the many other circumstances where you have shown your faithfulness, where you've answered prayers. Our oldest son, who's now 16, Emily almost lost him. When she was um, about halfway through the pregnancy, she had a the, um, the em- em- embryonic sac began to pull away from the uterine wall. She began to bleed and had to go on on severe bed rest. And we had prayer warriors come and pray and pray and pray. And miraculously, a blood clot formed and sealed the breach. And Judah was able to go full term. And he's very healthy today. So we know God heals and we believe in that. But, you know, so we had to look back and remember how God was faithful in the past and to be willing to accept that some questions we just won't have answers for and have to be okay with that. And so that's how we made it through and we continue to push on. And And I've seen many other couples who, who have gone through stuff like that and worse and have not been able to move forward. And um, marriages have been destroyed. Uh, people have left the faith and it's certainly no... Uh, I don't say that in any braggadocious way on on our faith or anything. I mean, we if there's one thing we did well was was we were on our face and we crawled well. We just didn't stop moving forward. Some days, some weeks or months, it was maybe an inch. <laughs> but we moved forward because we knew that the alternative was unacceptable. 
we knew that if we could not come together on this issue, that our marriage would be in jeopardy, our faith would be in jeopardy. And so we prayed a lot, we talked a lot, we got counsel from others a lot and were able to make it. And we still hurt every year. We remember we remember our babies, uh, their birthdays, and uh, we remember it, and it's still painful. And uh, But we know that God is faithful. But the thing that was the worst, I think, was after we lost Joseph, um, God reminded us of a dream that we had had, not an actual dream, but a vision, a, uh, a sense of calling. When we first got married, we had prayed about international adoption, and we said, someday we'll do that. And um, we knew after the second loss that we needed to have medical procedures so we would not get pregnant again because it was just so difficult. In fact, Emily had major bleeding issues on that, that when she, we lost Joseph. I mean, scary bad. And um, so we began to start the process of adoption. And so that began moving forward. And as we started that process and as we delayed medical, we got pregnant a third time. And, um, and we were convinced that of all the stories of people that have gotten pregnant after they couldn't once they began an adoption, <laughs> um, you probably heard of that well. So many people try to get pregnant, they don't, they begin to adopt and then they adopt or in the process they get pregnant. So I was in my mind, of course I was worried that the same might happen, but I thought, Lord, you are going to be, you are working towards the redemption of what has happened. And um, we're going to have our own baby again, biologically, and we're going to have another baby through adoption. And um, because honestly, in my mind, I just could not wrap my brain around how God could possibly allow us to lose a third child. Um, I mean, again, I'm not speaking out of pride, but we have been faithful. We either, both Emily and I, our entire lives, we've never had major seasons of backsliding. And so we just were like, "What? Are, this doesn't make sense. And um, we got pregnant and we were praying earnestly to make it through the first trimester of 12 weeks. And we did. And the very next week, Emily went into massive hemorrhaging at home. And she delivered at home, and we had to rush her into the hospital. And uh, her bleeding was was really, really serious. And so we lost our third baby. And uh, that resulted in the need for um, just months later for her to go in and have a hysterectomy at just the early age of 31. And so that was our journey through a very intense PhD program very intense season of coming out of this toxic, um, difficult previous um, experience with uh, ministry in the past where we have seen um, various abuse and uh, those kinds of things. Um, and so coming out of all of that and dealing with this, God was helping us learn how to dig deep and so, so we did. And by his grace, we made it through. And of course, the adoption went on. And uh, God has done so many amazing things in our lives through our daughter, Hallie, who we have adopted from Ethiopia. Um, and she's brought so much joy in our family. But it's, there's just unanswered questions. But all of that deeply, deeply informs my writing and my teaching, whether I'm teaching systematic theology or whether I'm teaching at a conference on basic pneumatology, the role of the spirit in your personal life, um, it, it informs everything. It informs my weekly writing for the blog um, because I don't want to give earnestly seeking people answers that are superficial. And if I don't know something, I'll admit it. 
And uh, but I also will admit that sometimes we just don't have answers. And um, and I think the biggest lesson we learned through that is that um, answers is not the answer. You know, for the longest time, we were so desperate on, Lord, why did this happen? Why did this happen? And we thought if we had an answer to it, that we'd be okay, that we'd be able to move forward in life. And eventually we realized that even if we had an answer, there would be another question. And so our answer had to be, Lord, we know you are faithful. Even when we don't understand, we know you are faithful and we can trust you. And that's what needed to happen in our lives, in our marriage, because God was preparing us for a future as missionaries. And the journey through itineration makes you really question your calling. It is very a difficult taxing journey. Um, and then of course, once you get to the field, there's culture shock, there's all sorts of things. But when we arrived, yes, it was difficult, but man, God had prepared us in so many ways. And now I am so grateful for the things that have happened. I wish it could have been done a different way, but for whatever reason, it hasn't, it didn't. But God has used our story to bring hope to so many other women struggling with pregnancy, other people struggling with uh, suffering in their past or their present. Um, when you've suffered, and I know we our suffering is minuscule compared to what many other people have gone through, but for us, it was devastating. And because we've suffered in our perspective deeply, it has helped us um, minister to others in a way that I know we couldn't have apart from that kind of suffering. And so the blog, Desperate for God, that I, I write, on, write in, you know, the theme is, uh, is renewing faith and restoring hope. And so everything I write, you know, goes towards that end. And they particularly come out of the poems that I've written in, uh, in my book, uh, Light for the Dark Night, and um, because all of those poems were written out of this type of dark night of the soul <clears throat> where you have questions. And so I'm writing to people because more and more as I talk, even to Christians who have served the Lord for years, uh, so many of them have come to a stalemate in the relationship with God over this issue of suffering and disillusionment. And so I felt like this was something that I can contribute, um, that may help people. And so, um, so that's why I started Desperate for God. That's why I wrote the book, The Way of the Thorn, the, my devotional allegory. That came out of a different dark night of, my, of the soul in my life right after I, right as I was graduating from my Master's of Divinity. It was a, a different kind of season, but deeply painful. Um, and that book came out of that, and my poems came out of that. And it's just been this thread of a theme really from my early 20s until today of God's grace being sufficient, especially in our weakness. And so that's a very devotional topic. But for me now as a theologian, academic, um, it absolutely informs all of my theology. And my theology now is able to inform it as well. And so that's why I believe that the study of the Holy Spirit um, is especially important uh, in our lives for a vital, a dynamic, a transforming kind of faith, but especially for those who are, are in or who have had seasons of darkness and suffering. Um, in this aspect, a new metallurgical theology can really be a game changer because people can understand uh, the resources we have through the Holy Spirit uh, to empower us in ways, um, especially when all we know is just weakness and uncertainty. 
Yeah, it seems like suffering is one of those things that, like, when you when you get down into it as as a believer, it's really all that you can kind of see, and it feels like your emotions just kind of take over at that point because all you can feel is the pain, and you, you start wondering where God's at in the middle of all of that. And I, I really like a a couple of stanzas from your um, devotional poem on the ebb and flow. I want to read those real quick, and then uh, hopefully you can talk about this a little bit more. The ebb and flow is a fact of life. Away from it, we cannot run. We shall be tossed, we shall be thrown, but our raft we choose. The raft of emotions, secure on the crest, though unstable and tossed, from its perch to its depth. Or Christ the raft, secure on the crest, secure in the depths, stable and firm, led by God's breath. And honestly, your your story of going through the loss of three children, uh, like you said, at what what else can you do but fall before God and say, "We have nothing. Where are you?" And, and so, I think the the conclusion to kind of fall back on Christ the raft and say, "I'm just gonna." I'm just going to trust you. I can't do anything else. That's that's an incredible yeah. statement to make, having gone through what you've experienced. Yeah, and so uh, to follow that up, I mean, clearly, and it's so evident in your poetry and your writing, and so thank you for addressing, being vulnerable and having the courage to address these things uh, in that form. I know poetry, at least for me, poetry is so much harder to let other people read than you know, maybe just like a blog post sort of expounding on ideas, because uh, it just feels like you're putting so much more of your soul down on on paper or on the screen. Um, just want to follow up with something that you just said, <clears throat> particularly about the spiritual role in helping us grow through these emotional times, and that is how can our emotions be used by God to help in our seeking and, and, and building and growing our relationship? Because so often it seems like emotions, especially trial, trialing times in the dark night of the soul, get seen as a negative. It's because something is wrong in your life, and, and you, know, you sort of address this of, uh, God, we've been faithful. But the more people we have talked to who've gone through circumstances like this, that seems to be more of the common theme of, uh, kind of like the Job story. God, I have been faithful. Why am I experiencing this? Um, so what did you find? Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that it, the, the Spirit definitely uses those emotions. How did you find, though, that your emotions were tethered to the Spirit through this time? Well, <clears throat> you know, part, part of what you need to be able to do in those times is we need to allow ourselves to be honest and vulnerable with God. And sometimes those are, it's finding your own prayer closet where no one else is going to hear you. (laughs) Uh, Maybe a a soundproof prayer closet where you can just really vent. And um, because we need to be honest with God. And I think that we just sometimes we, we, we imbibe these ideas from our Christian and church culture that we have to have it all together or we have to have answers. And um, it's not okay to say certain things. Um, but I just, I found that as I would just be honest with God. And for me, that's, you know, for me, it's walking. I, I, I have to get outdoors and I just need a solitary place, a pathway that I can walk. And that's where I meet with God. And I pray and I tell him how I'm feeling. And I create what I like to call sacred space, um, where I intentionally get away from my office, from my home. Um, Even though those can be great places to pray, for me, something different happens when I get outdoors. Um, 
and I hear the Lord in a different way. Um, and so for me, that's that's where I feel a freedom in the spirit. Um, and so um, for me as a as a Pentecostal Christian, I, you know, I I pray in the spirit. I meditate on scripture. I um, especially in times where I don't know what to pray and I'm I'm frustrated. And as I do that, I just find that the Holy Spirit uh, will speak a word, will bring up a scripture. Um, I'll suddenly get an idea that will all of a sudden be a game changer. And I think, why did I not, you know, think of that before? But, you know, my the theme of the blog is desperate for God and that theme of desperation is very important to me because we live differently in our faith when we're actually desperate for God uh, to move. To, to Yes, we know God is always with us. He's never away from us. But as embodied human beings, uh, we have seasons where we're more attuned to his presence than at others. Um, even cognitive science can give some insight on why it sometimes we're more attuned to certain things than others. And But for whatever the reason is, when you're desperate for God, you pray differently. You read scripture differently. You read with a fervency. You pray with a fervency. And I don't know how to explain that theologically, but I can say that when I am really desperate for God, um, I pray differently and his presence seems nearer. I, I sense a difference in those times. It's not a formula. <clears throat> it's not manipulation. But I find that when my external circumstances are particularly devastating, I find it easier to embrace this attitude, what I call holy desperation. But I know that what God is calling me, and I believe calling anybody to, is an internal attitude of holy desperation that's stable, regardless of our circumstances. That we come to the point where we understand that even in our best of times, that we are miserable if God isn't the center of our life. That's not to say that we're not grateful. I am, I've been so blessed with an amazing wife. Emily has stood with me through my schooling and through, we have walked through so many difficult, difficult times. And she has been an anchor to me. My children are such a blessing. I adore them. I love them. But we have to have an awareness that all of that is wrapped up and comes from God himself. And I find that even in my best of times, if I'm not aware of God's presence, there is still an emptiness. There is still, and it's almost like an addiction, but without the negative connotation. I have another poem where I talk about just one drop of his presence makes us miserable for anything else. Because when we've tasted God's presence, it's, you know, nothing else ever compares. But it's this sense of being desperate for God. Um, and I bring it into every role that I have. I, I am a miserable husband if I am not desperate for God, because I will inevitably become selfish. And I am not a very good father if my relationship with God ceases to be one of desperation because I'll just simply become religious and not realize it. And I'll excuse certain things. Uh, even if I may have, quote, a right to certain things, I won't be walking in the love that the Holy Spirit freely makes available if we are desperate and if we seek and ask and draw near with all of our heart. And so for me, that whole draw near to God and he will draw near to you is is this theme of holy desperation. And so my quest since my late 20s, when I began my writings devotionally in this theme of 
holy desperation. My life message is that of holy desperation. And my, my yearning is that I would be able to be faithful to that call. And there are seasons where I'm miserable at it and I, I am just really overwhelmed with other things. Um, I find that as the Lord blesses us, you know, as we're faithful, yes, he does bless us over time. Things do go well. God has, we're always going to have the loss of the babies that we will see someday, but not this side of heaven. We will always suffer and hurt over that. But we know that God is faithful and we have so much to look forward to. And and even today, we're living our dream. We're here in Europe. I'm doing what I've dreamed of doing and never thought I'd actually be able to. Emily has had a calling for mission since she was 16. And she's been with YWAM. She's traveled the world. And when we got married, she thought she had to put that on hold and never knew if she would ever get to do missions again. And now here she is, a missionary working uh, in the area of human trafficking, ministering to women who are victims of uh, modern day slavery. It's just amazing. And she's just so grateful to what God is doing. But even in all of these good things, we can become so busy, so busy and satisfied with these good things and forget that we're not desperate for God. And we can trick ourselves into thinking that that we are satisfied. But unless we are really drinking from the presence of the Holy Spirit, um, we'll become satisfied by what's around us. And we won't realize it until we again, quote, get another taste of that, the drop of God's presence. I don't know if that's making sense. I'm just probably saying more than I need to. But um, I cannot talk about what God's doing in my life or what my vision or call is or my past without talking about these things because um, this is who I am. This is my calling and, and I get to share on it in chapel services and church services that I preach at. Um, but I find, and today I find especially we're in a part of Europe that's so incredibly secular. And I know in North America, secularism is is growing and rising and it's seeping into the churches and many Christians who have been Christians over years are falling away from their faith and it's largely, and research has been done, it's largely over this issue of theodicy. Why did God let this happen? And um, we need Christians who are willing to walk through the valleys and are committed to being faithful to God because they will have a testimony on the other side. And if we are faithful, God will prove his faithfulness and we will become a powerful testimony because otherwise all we can just say is some superficial answer. And that's why people walk away from the church because uh, life needs more than superficial answers. And not to say that we have answers. You don't have to have an answer to be relevant to someone with serious questions. You have to be authentic and you have to have a relationship that has walked through suffering and knows that God is enough. And that kind of honesty and authenticity, I think, is what people need to come back into the faith again. And what many people, many secular people that are not Christians, they're looking for that as well. And so that's why I believe that, I believe that our place as spirit-filled Christians, and I'm not identifying that in any denominational terms at all. It means that we recognize that for a large majority of church history, theology has primarily focused on what's called a theology of the first article, which is God the Father. And then also, particularly from the Reformation onwards, the church is focused on the theology of the second article, which is Christology, the role of the Son. And it's largely been from the beginning of the 20th century onward that theology from a systematic perspective has started 
to become, and really I would say in the last 50 years, has started to be written from what we now call a theology of the third article, which is recognizing the centrality, the significance, the importance of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean just writing only about the Holy Spirit, but it means being truly Trinitarian in how we do our theology. So often aspects of the church will claim their orthodox heritage as being Trinitarian, but they only talk about God the Father and God the Son, and the only mention of the Holy Spirit will have to do with the inspiration of Scripture or the natural outworking of Christian maturity uh, through receiving Christ in our hearts, and somehow the Spirit works to help us grow stronger, and that's the extent of it. Well, the Bible talks a whole lot more about the role of the Holy Spirit, and there's a lot of really exciting things and relevant theology that's being written that talks about pneumatology in a way that is very relevant to pressing realities in society today, especially areas of, uh, of social justice, especially dealing with the environment, dealing with politics, uh, dealing with um, issues of gl various global crisis, um, violence, dealing with uh, family. When you begin doing theology from a perspective of the Holy Spirit, uh, you just open up possibilities to engage in so many other areas because the Holy Spirit was sent to mediate the presence of Christ in his absence. And so to talk about the presence of the Christ, of Christ, you have to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we talk about here when we speak of doing theology from a, quote, Pentecostal framework. It means pneumatological. And so there's so much to talk about. And to talk about, to begin talking about the Holy Spirit doesn't mean we stop talking about the Father or the Son, but rather it means that we do theology intentionally from a Trinitarian framework. We understand the role of the Spirit in relation to the Father and the Son. And you can't talk about the Son apart from the Spirit. They're inseparable. And you can't talk about the Father apart from the Spirit and the Son. And so it's about being theologically authentic when we start talking about incorporating pneumatology into the theological agenda because it has largely not been uh, conspicuous. Um, now, I know there have been exceptions. Certain streams of certain traditions have been intentionally pneumatological, especially when you talk about Eastern Christianity. They've had a long, long heritage. They've maintained a strong reverence for the Holy Spirit, and their theology has demonstrated that as well. But a lot of um, theology as we've come to know it in the Protestant West has really not emphasized the role of the Holy Spirit. And we're seeing a revival today. Um, not just I'm talking about spirituality, talking about the charismatic movement, but I'm talking about a revival in Christian theology that talks about uh, the role of the Holy Spirit. In fact, major academic book publishers today are looking for writers in the area, particularly of Pentecostal theology or Pentecostal pneumatology because it's very, people are interested in it. And so the publishers are now actually publishing it. Some of these major publishers like, um, like Erdman's and uh, Bloomsbury and Brill and some of these others uh, are starting to publish strictly Pentecostal theology. And so it's really exciting to see what's happening there, but that may not be a part of the areas you want to discuss here, but Again, it all—it's all a web for me, and it's all integrated. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. It is definitely an area that we need to give more attention and focus to. Um, and I think as as scholars begin to put more time and more work out, um, it will sort of filter down, if you will, and and we will be able to incorporate, uh, as you say, pneumatological uh, practices more deeply into our spiritual lives. And uh, hopefully incorporating them theologically correct, so we can have uh, we can have orthopraxy with our orthodoxy. So, um, as we sort of wrap up, we like to ask our guests a couple of uh, questions here. So, first one is if you could require 
every Christian, or maybe your students, since you're in a teaching context, um, to read two books. And I know that's limiting, but if you could just require them to read two books, you say, these are essential, um, which would they be? And you can even um, put, put, put the context if you want to say, like, who those students might be and why those books would be chosen. Hmm, that's a good question. And it's hard to answer because I have a lot of books. Yeah, and you want to choose 10. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think, and, and in this, this may sound like a pat answer because a lot of people would say this author as well. But honestly, uh, a lot of what C.S. Lewis has had to say in Mere Christianity, I think, is so relevant today because so many people are stuck um, on issues that uh, we see uh, within a secular worldview contest, especially in an atheistic context. And C.S. Lewis, who was so brilliant, was able to speak to those issues. And I'm not necessarily promoting that we have to have, you know, well-rehearsed, memorized, apologetic answers. But I'm talking about learn how to listen and understand what people are really concerned about. And Lewis did that very well. And he was able to answer in a way that wasn't very churchy, but it was very biblical. And so I think reading Lewis and even reading lots of Lewis um, helps to provide a way to kind of begin developing a theological grid to think about some of these various secular issues. Um, and really you don't have to be an academic or, I mean, anybody can read Lewis. It will stretch you, mere Christianity. Um, but he's also written on issues of suffering as well and his books. Um, so I like Lewis, um, and some other really good books. Um, one of the things that I think is really important, people ask, you know, well, my faith is dry. You talk about experiencing God, how, how do we do that? When I pray, it just feels like my answers kind of bounce off of heaven and come back. And, you know, well, in many ways, there's reasons for that. And some of those reasons have to do with a very modern culture that has not learned how to be still and how to quiet our hearts. And, um, you know, we live in constant distraction. And so many of the great spiritual writers in church history um, had various practices that were normal. And for much of church history, what we think of as radical practices today uh, were actually normal and accepted and expected in the church. When I talk about practices, I talk about, you know, solitude, um, times of extended prayer or fasting, um, times in worship, uh, reading, um, you know, giants of the faith, uh, early church fathers, uh, talking about, you know, basic, just even going to church, um, various things like this, um, learning how to train our bodies to be still and engage in certain disciplines that make us more receptive and sensitive to hearing God as he speaks to us. Uh, these are called spiritual disciplines. And they don't come easy for us moderns. Um, when we're in an instant gratification era of life or instant answers with internet, uh, Netflix, and, and not that these things are necessarily bad. I mean, there's always bad aspects of them, but we have got to become wise stewards of our time and of our energies. Um, we have to learn how to nurture our souls. And so I would say two books in particular um, which I'm sure you're aware of, uh, Richard um, Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline, and Dallas Willard's The Spirit of the Discipline, are two books that talk about that and how uh, because we live in flesh and blood bodies, we are susceptible to uh, very normal realities of life that in many ways are contrary to the spiritual life. And we have to learn how to train our bodies uh, away from habits of selfishness and self-satisfaction and pride. And we do that by 
diligently engaging in certain practices that train us to live otherwise. And eventually that otherwise becomes more habitual. And we begin to reap the spiritual benefits that come with that, like uh, having a mind that's more quickly receptive to hearing God when we read scripture, to engaging more immediately in God's presence when we enter into worship or into prayer. And so I really think that one of the greatest needs today for the church is learning to recapture these disciplines so that we learn how to be sensitive to God's voice. Um, so that that's those would be, I think, uh, three books that I would highly recommend. If you're within a Pentecostal traditional background, I would recommend um, books, especially if you're in North America, um, authors like Vincent Sinan. Um, he has a book called The Century of the Holy Spirit, and it traces the move of the Holy Spirit um, you know, from the early 20th century onward. It gives you kind of a historical perspective of, of amazing things that's happened um, within the Pentecostal charismatic movement. If you're interested in um, what's happening globally, um, you've got books like by Alan Anderson called An Introduction to Pentecostal. I think it's an introduction to Pentecostalism or Pentecostal theology, but it's a it's a classic book. Um, hold on a minute. Yeah, it's just called an Introduction to Pentecostalism. Um, that's a great introductory book to kind of give you a picture that's not necessarily written from a North American perspective of what it means to be Pentecostal or a Pentecostal-like Christian. And he looks at um, global expressions of the movement. And uh, it's really quite refreshing and actually eye-opening for those that have only been exposed to really the North American expression. Yeah. So I hope those are helpful oh, cool. resources Thank you. to recommend. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, and then again, um, I, I want to also just mention maybe uh, selfishly, but um, I, I've talked in in our time together here about the role of the body and embodiment and how that relates to Christian faith. Um, but I've actually written a book. It was just published a, um, last um, last year around this time. And it's called Salvation in the Flesh, Understanding How Embodiment Shapes Christian Faith. And so it's a, it's a very, quite an academic book. It's not an easy read, but it's not tremendously difficult either. But it, it's a very interdisciplinary book that integrates um, early church practices, like I was just talking about. Um, that's one whole domain. It integrates um, a very influential Christian theologian, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and it talks about um, his theology. It talks about Pentecostal spirituality, and of all things, it talks about recent breakthroughs in the neurocognitive sciences. And I talk about a scientific framework to understand the nature of knowing and how that has implications on how we engage in the process of knowing God. And so I integrate all of these things together to kind of construct a, what I call a renewal uh, soteriology, or in other words, soteriology meaning uh, salvation. So a renewal or a, a spirit-framed understanding of what salvation looks like and can look like. <laughs> yeah. Well, we might have to have you back on to talk about that because there is a ton there that I would like to dive in and explore a little uh, deeper with you, perhaps after we've had a chance to get our own copy and and, and read that. So um, where can people go to find out more about you or to purchase um, this book or any of the others that you have? Sure. Yeah, all my books uh, you can find on Amazon. Uh, you can just search for my name, David Tremontosi, and, and they should come up. Um, um, or you can go directly to my the publisher I used for the recent book, Salvation in the Flesh, uh, Wiffenstock. Uh, publishers. Um, you can go straight to their website, WIPF, um, ampersand, stock, S-T-O-C-K. Uh, you can go there for that. Um, and then for my, my usually my weekly writings with my blog, just go to davidtremontosi.com and that'll take you to my blog site, Desperate for God. And um, 
currently I have um, I have about 82, 83 blogs right now, uh, posts that I've done. And interestingly, just as a <laughs> spoiler alert, I am in the process of um, compiling a devotional that will take from all of the uh, posts that I've done over the last two and a half years, and I'm going to be putting together a 122-day devotional uh, hitting the themes that we've talked about through my uh, through Desperate for God, and then I'm going to be adding a, a little bit more content to it. But I wanted to take all of this this stuff and put it in a digestible daily um, daily um, accessible format. So I'm hoping that by this time next year, I'll have that book out as well. <laughs> awesome. Well, we look forward to that. Thank you, Dr. Trementosi, for your vulnerability, for your insights into living the Christian life, even amidst difficult and trying circumstances. I know your story was not easy to share, and so I want to thank you for being open with us. For you guys out there, make sure you go and check out davidtrementosi.com. You're going to want to read his blog post to continue with this journey with him. He's got so many more insights to share, so much more research to get out there, and go and check out his books. You're not going to want to miss it. Thanks for listening to the Daily Growth Discipleship Podcast. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening at Daily Growth, go to dailygrowthdiscipleship.com and subscribe for free. Or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Spotify.